0: There are many members of Congress who are now questioning whether or not the Emirati role in the Middle East in particular is actually stabilizing or not.
1: It is the week of August 10th, and welcome to episode 37 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Stroul, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and also the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jody Herman, former staff director at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Last week, the United Arab Emirates launched a nuclear power plant, the first nuclear power plant in the Middle East. Dana, can you talk to us about the significance of this event?
0: Sure. It is a very big event. This is the next step in a process that was initiated when the United Arab Emirates signed a 123 agreement, which is a section of the Atomic Energy Act by which Congress gets a vote on whether or not the U.S. government should pursue a civilian nuclear energy agreement with any country. In the case of the UAE, there was a heightened standard in the 123 agreement. It's called the gold standard. And that gold standard means that the UAE committed in an agreement with the United States to do no domestic enrichment or reprocessing of its spent nuclear fuel. The kicker, however, after Congress had oversight into those negotiations, the one, two, three agreement was concluded and the UAE started down its path of constructing nuclear reactors for civilian energy purposes is that the United States doesn't actually have a robust civilian nuclear Energy industry, and so the New York Times has recently come out with an article that talked about South Korean companies working with the UAE to develop its first nuclear reactor, and in some ways that's a loss for the United States in in the partnership it could have in this area.
1: So, Dana, I think what we want to do is dive deep into nuclear power issues in the Middle East, which of course will eventually get us to Jameel's weekly thirty seconds on the Iran nuclear deal. But before we get to that, let's talk about UAE for a little bit. UAE doesn't get nearly the kind of press Saudi Arabia does, even though its effective leader, Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ is a big ally of Mohammed bin Salman, the real power broker in Saudi. MBZ is extremely influential in the region. He's got good relations in Washington. UAE itself is amazingly capable. In addition to having a nuclear power plant now, they've launched a probe to Mars. They've got all kinds of capabilities. Are we under Estimating the influence of UAE by focusing too much on Saudi Arabia.
0: I wouldn't say that we're underestimating their influence. There was this great article, I can't remember which newspaper years ago, where it had some of our American military generals talking about the UAE as little Sparta. And what they meant was that for such a small population, the UAE is really punching above its weight. And what we're seeing today with the launch of the probe to Mars, the opening of the civilian nuclear reactor, et cetera, is the UAE attempting to present itself as not Not just about an oil producer, and oil exporter, but use that oil wealth to convert itself into a knowledge economy. It is a small country and they have used not just the immense security cooperation, and weapons purchases with the United States to advance its own agenda, but also extensive commercial and economic and trade deals. Both here in the United States and frankly, throughout the world, including with Russia, including with China, including with many states, with other countries in Europe and the Middle East. So here's the rub. The United States and the UAE have a long partnership. It is based both in military cooperation, but also very extensive in the economic arena. But the UAE has its own view of the threats facing it. And sometimes it is aligned with the United States and how to address those threats. And sometimes it's not. So you're right, Les, that a lot of focus has been on Saudi Arabia and perceptions of the role that Saudi Arabia has played in the Middle East and in recent regional developments as destabilizing. And I would say that there are many members of Congress who are now questioning whether or not the Emirati role in the Middle East in particular is actually stabilizing or not. And a few examples of that are that the UAE and Saudi Arabia worked hand in hand in the blockade against Qatar, which has very much undermined pursuit of U.S. objectives. The UAE is working with Russia and Egypt backing a strongman in Libya, General Heftar, which is opposing the international and U.N. recognized government that the U.S. supports. The big question now is, is whether or not the UAE... Has developed its own capabilities enough that it is going to pursue its objectives the way it perceives them and not coordinate with the United States, and what that means for how the United States perceives its partnerships and how we can pursue our own interests in the region.
1: Jody, let me put you on the spot and have you talk a little bit about how President Biden would treat UAE differently than President Trump has, or maybe even differently than President Obama did to kind of build on. Dana's point, UAE is also playing a big role, arguably bigger than Saudi Arabia in the civil war in Yemen, which has had a bunch of very negative humanitarian consequences, a lot of human rights abuses. And while, you know, of course, we're deeply concerned about the Iranian role as well, there's been a lot of criticism, particularly by Democrats, of the Saudi UAE alliance. But most of that criticism is focused on Saudi. So how would a President Biden handle UAE, do you think? All
2: right. So let me just kind of put a little bit of this in the context the way that I think about it, right? So, you know, I think Dana appropriately pointed out that the UAE is an increasingly influential player in D.C., right? And that we do have important strategic and economic relationships with the Emiratis. At the same time, I think we sometimes in Washington need to remember, of course, that these are self-interested countries, right, that they have their own agendas that are not necessarily our agenda, particularly as it relates to regional issues, right? So the Emiratis, just like the Saudis, at the end of the day, are authoritarian states, right? And their interests extend well beyond our shared interest in containing Iran, right? So you see Saudi and Emirati influence throughout the region, obviously in Libya, as Dana pointed out, but also you're seeing an increasing amount of Saudi and Emirati money in East Africa, in Sudan and Ethiopia. And then of course, as you noted, less developments in Yemen. So what does Biden do differently here? I think it's a little bit more self-awareness about who these people are, who these countries are that we're working with right, and what their goals are versus what our goals are. So I think that the Biden administration will be sensitive to Congress's very real concerns about the war in Yemen, right? So Congress has gone out of its way to tell the administration that they're not okay with continued arms sales to Saudi Arabia and and the Emirates if they're being used in the war in Yemen. I would expect that to come to hopefully a relatively quick end simply just based on congress's interest in that space and then the second thing i might look for is some bolder statements about these countries internal actions right these as I noted, are authoritarian regimes with their own internal problems, particularly as it relates to democracy and respect for human and civil rights. Like, we can have tough conversations even with uh, even with our partners. We have security interests, and I would expect that the Biden administration wouldn't be afraid to step into that arena.
1: Jamil, what do you think of this big interests versus values question. If uh, President Biden's going to tilt a little more towards the values balance, what's wrong with focusing on mutual interests between the U.S. and the Emiratis? We have mutual concerns over Iranian malign influence in the region, Iranian aggression in Yemen, other things, both very concerned about growing Iranian nuclear threat What's wrong with the Trump approach, if anything?
3: There may be a lot of things to say about the Trump approach to foreign policy generally, but when it comes to the interests versus values thing, look, I think that at the end of the day, every nation acts in its own interests and identifies what those interests are. And sometimes those interests involve values, but it need not be exclusively so, or even primarily so. You know, at the end of the day, we have to decide what we think is going to benefit us from a national security perspective. And ideally that would align with our values. But we have often pursued our values in ways that I think that have caused us challenges, right? We pursued our values of pursuing democracy in Iraq when it did not work out particularly well for us in the long run. We did establish democracy in Iraq, and they have had elections going forward, but you know, we remain in that quagmire for a long time. And so there are debates about how much a value-based foreign policy should play. I think our values are important uh, to effectuate, and I do think that we must carry them out and carry them into the world. I think that America is a force for good, and, and the more that we effectuate our values to our foreign policy, the better off we are. That being said, We shouldn't let a slavish attachment to our values get uh, in the way of our national interests. And in the Middle East, let's be candid. None of our partners are particularly the best when it comes to our core values. And so we have to play with people we don't necessarily like the best. And whether that's the Emiratis or the Qataris or the Saudis, or the Israelis at times. Let's be candid, right? We're not going to always agree with these folks from a values perspective.
2: Wait, wait, wait. So, Jamil, hold on a second. Slavish attachment to values? So what? We adhere to our values when it's politically or strategically convenient for us, so we hold some countries to account but not others? Is that your position?
3: No, I'm just saying that when we engage with other nations, we're going to have to play with people that we don't love, right? That's just the reality, right? I mean, The idea that we're only going to work with countries where we agree with them 100% on every issue of values is unrealistic or that we're going to be able to enforce our values upon them Let's just take the Saudis, but for example, we, we, right? You
2: can't have a tough conversation even. Listen, we've got to work with the Egyptians and the Pakistanis and the Saudis and the Emiratis. We have a lot of countries that are difficult for us to work with for these reasons. I guess the question I have is whether or not an administration shies away from having tough conversations. I always not, think that we can do both. We can always do both. And when we step away from doing that, it reflects very poorly on us.
3: I'm not going to disagree with that. I agree 100% that we should do both, right? But that doesn't mean prioritizing values at every point in time over national interest, right? And so I think that at the end of the day, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, for example, right, there are gonna be things that we're just not gonna agree with the Saudis on, and they're gonna go their own course. We can't mold every nation to our view of what their values ought to be nor necessarily should we always do that, right? Should we pursue values-based foreign policy? Absolutely. Are we going to have to work with people we don't like and put up with things they do that we don't like? Absolutely also. And the Saudis are, I think, case in point of that, right? But, you know, I think that at the end of the day, we should have these tough conversations. I think this administration should be lauded for having those tough conversations with China, right? And calling out what they did in Xinjiang. Now, it may not be enough. We may need to do more, right? But, it's not enough to simply say, well, you know, the Saudis treat their people badly, or they engage in the murder journals, so we should just cut off relations, or we should let them go their own way. We're not going to do that, obviously. And I think that calling on the administration to do that or suggesting that the next administration will be any more
1: aggressive about that or more successful with that, I think, is somewhat unrealistic. Dana, I want to get your opinion on this, but also, it's my view that, as Jamil kind of alluded there, I think this is where he was going, values and interests are not all that different. At the end of the day, America values are very much in our interest to promote as well. And in the long run, if we're promoting our approach to human rights and democracy, that's very much in our interests also. It's not just because we love humanity. It's because it's good for America if we're promoting those things around the globe. Why don't you react to that? So course? first
0: of all, I think there's actually, you know, all of us coming from the Hill, tremendous bipartisan convergence on that notion that interests and values are very much aligned and that we are pursuing and protecting our interests by consistently raising and promoting our values. And a great example, Jody talked about the authoritarian nature of most of the governments in the Middle East and the manner in which these governments pursue what they believe to be their interest with harsh counterterrorism tactics locking up not just people who violently oppose the government but peacefully are attempting to exercise their rights in protesting or expressing dissent to the extent that you have massive populations of political prisoners in these countries suppressing freedom of expression etc actually makes these countries and societies more unstable, which means they're less able to partner with us in pursuing our interests in security and stability in the Middle East. That's number one. And number two, I agree with Jamil that the current administration should be lauded for raising the horrible genocide taking place in China. But the reality of the Trump administration is it's giving us a perfect example of how to deprioritize values, issues of human rights protections, et cetera, in what it believes to be the pursuit of our interests. And a great example is that The Trump administration doesn't raise human rights, political dissidents, suppression of civil society, freedom of expression, et cetera, with almost any government in the Middle East. I feel like this conversation is sort of painting it as an either or. When the United States raises these issues, it makes a difference. When the United States consistently raises either specific cases or general issues, you actually see changes in the behavior, not 100% changes into the perfect Jeffersonian democracy we have here. And certainly a Biden administration, I would imagine, would be realistic about we're not going to see full transformational change of the systems of governance in the Middle East. But when we call out human rights violations and we call out bad behavior, you do see governments adjust and react. But that's also when the United States has carved out for itself a place of leadership on a platform of values. And we're certainly not doing that right now.
2: Just one last word, Last, when we stop having these conversations, even hard conversations, we lose standing in the world and we unintentionally enable further concerning conduct, right? It is a space that we have staked out and we do better by ourselves and by everybody else, right? And, and create more peace and stability when we fulfill that role.
1: So we want to pivot to the nuclear power issue, but let me just throw one thing on the table. And this might be something we talk about in a couple weeks on the next podcast. But Secretary Pompeo at the State Department convened a very distinguished group of scholars a year ago, and they came up with a report that talks about promoting American values as they're based on the founding of the American Republic and our values of fundamental rights from the creator for the individual and the importance of limited government and protecting individual conscience and all of those things. It's actually, I think, a terrifically fascinating approach that could be infused in what Trump is doing. And I don't mean to say that President Trump has some profound understanding of human rights beyond what others have, but it is a very interesting take from Secretary Pompeo, who usually does not get any kind of credit for doing good work on the human rights front. So I just think that it's maybe a little bit more complicated than we're letting on. And before we totally pivot to the nuclear issue, I do think the Biden administration is going to confront exactly the same dilemmas the Trump administration administration has in the Middle East and is going to end up being a pretty good friend of the Emiratis, just as Trump has. Jamil, do you want to say something?
2: There is a lot of criticism of that report for what it doesn't cover, right? Some of the intention behind that report was to only look at a certain set of rights and thereby basically exclude other rights. Right, rights of minorities, LGBT communities, and so on. So I don't think you will find a single one of the human rights organizations out there who are behind
1: that report. Not a woman. I, I, you're probably right. That's not my take on it. I think it's absolutely something we should discuss, Jamil.
3: Again, I want to be really clear. I completely support a value-based foreign policy, and I completely agree that putting our values first oftentimes, and if not more often than not, uh, works in the U.S.'s benefit and, and works to our interests. That being said, right, there are times at which our values, our values against coup d'etats, right, are going to be in tension with our interests in having stable governments. Just look at the Obama administration's, you know, response to the ascension of al-Sisi in Egypt, right, where he overthrew a democratic-led government that came out of street protests where people were effectuating their right to free speech and getting out there and putting the government they want. We didn't like the Muslim Brotherhood government for good reason, or as a government that was corrupt and hugely problematic right? And we support the CC government as we should. But there's a situation where our values and our interests are intention, and we resolve it, frankly, in the right way. Supporting CC was the right move. It was a mistake for the administration to dither around that for weeks on end about whether this coup ban would prevent them from doing it or not. And again, putting these kind of provisions in law, right? Just like the provisions with respect to training military forces overseas, right? Those oftentimes get in the way of our counterterrorism efforts when we have to work with people we don't necessarily love in order to get the job done, And that's what I find hugely problematic about a sort of complete attachment to a values-based foreign policy that is completely detached from our interests.
1: Dana, let's flex back to the nuclear issue, which is where we started. Compare and contrast, if you will, the way UAE has approached civilian nuclear power with the other news that came out recently that Saudi Arabia is cooperating with the People's Republic of China on its own civilian nuclear program.
0: So what Les is referring to is a really big article in the Wall Street Journal a couple days ago that revealed, based on what I presume would be a tip-off from some in our intelligence community to signal to the Saudis that we know what you're doing, the Chinese have assisted in the construction of a facility that is producing yellow cake, which is one of the steps on your way to producing the enriched uranium you would need for a nuclear weapon. So what it suggests is that the Saudis are going ahead and pursuing not just an energy program, but domestic enrichment. And then one can assume perhaps the capability to reprocess spent nuclear fuel as well. So in the early years or days of the Trump administration, there was an effort to conclude a one, two, three agreement with Saudi Arabia. And there was insistence by both sides of the aisle in Congress and by um, then Energy Secretary Rick Perry to negotiate with the Saudis for a gold standard one, two, Three agreement. So the same thing as the UAE, where the, the government pledges to not pursue domestic enrichment. And essentially, the Saudis said no. Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, came for a huge visit to the United States. He was asked about this in the halls of Congress. He gave public interviews and he said, No, it's ours, and if I want to enrich it, I won't enrich it. And he said, And if Iran gets a bomb, then a nuclear weapon, then whoop get a nuclear weapon too. So what this article is revealing is that the United States has not concluded a one two three agreement, and certainly at no point did the Trump administration update Congress on the parameters or the developments in those negotiations for a one one, two, three agreement, which opens up a whole nother set of questions. But while those negotiations have lagged or now stalled, the Saudis have gone ahead and started to pursue their program, but without the transparency measures that would assure the world that their intentions are exclusively peaceful. And you do that by either adopting the additional protocol for enhanced transparency to the IAEA, which allows the IAEA to confirm to the world that what you're doing inside your country is for domestic peaceful purposes. And also without the enhanced transparency and legitimacy or credibility that concluding a one-two-three agreement with the United States would provide. And that's what's concerning about this development.
1: Jamil, how concerned should we be about what Saudi Arabia is doing? And is this the fault of the Trump administration for pulling out of the JCPOA? In other words, does Saudi have more of a concern now about Iranian nuclear power since we pulled out of the Iranian nuclear deal and Iran has responded by spinning up its centrifuges and advancing its nuclear weapons program?
3: Well, I think what we should be very concerned, obviously, a continued acquisition of Uranium enrichment capabilities in the Middle East is concerning. It could set the region aflame and and cause problems within the region. We've long had the position that other nations should not enrich uranium domestically, right? That has been uh, the U.S. policy for decades. We effectuated it most clearly in the so-called gold standard agreement with the United Arab Emirates so that we talked about a little bit earlier, that one-two-three agreement where we agreed to give them new, civilian nuclear power and the capability to do that without them enriching domestically. But of course, in the JCPOA, we conceded that to Iran. The Obama administration gave that away. And so that concession right there alone is what has led Other nations of the Middle East like Saudi Arabia to feel like they need to be able to have a domestic enrichment capability and to frankly get into what may become a nuclear arms race. And that is the huge problem. And so the die for this situation was cast long before Donald Trump came into office. It was cast by that failed nuclear deal that I know we always come to, but let's just call it what it is. I mean, that is why we are here. It's why the Saudis are enriching uranium with the help of the Chinese. And frankly, you know, the U.S. should have gotten in there more aggressively and solved this problem earlier, and frankly, not caved on that issue to Iran.
1: Jody, how do you think candidate Biden is going to handle this issue? Of course, he was part of the Obama administration effort to negotiate the JCPOA, implement it. It was seen as a major victory by the Obama administration major diplomatic victory. How is Joe Biden going to talk about Saudi civilian nuclear power in light of Trump pulling out of the deal?
2: So I think I have to back up to Jamil a little bit here. So people who are familiar with the members of Congress that I work for know that they weren't particularly fond of the JCPOA. Having said that, I do have to like raise the question of whether or not pulling out of the agreement has actually accelerated Iran's nuclear program and therefore accelerated the Saudi effort to have their own nuclear program, right? Like obviously the worms are out of the can, but like I do... think you have to ask the question of whether or not like it's made it all worse. And so for a Biden administration coming into office, I think the first thing on their agenda is bringing all of us back into the JCPOA, right, is seeing whether or not we can reset to a place of a little bit more stability, like this idea that we're going to have a nuclear Middle East. And I don't mean nuclear powered Middle East. I mean, a nuclear Middle East where you have an Iranian and Saudi states and potentially others with acts. to nuclear capability is truly terrifying. So I know we started this conversation about talking about one, two, threes. I think that that's where Biden will go. And then I think the second thing that has to happen is we need to bring Saudi Arabia into a gold standard one, two, three agreement. I just don't think you're going to be able to do that until you put Iran a little bit back into their box. Like Saudi Arabia has made its intentions incredibly. incredibly clear. They're not even attempting to hide the ball on their intentions. And I don't think we're able to alter their position until we've addressed the Iran issue a little bit. I know they didn't like the JCPOA, but the truth is we're actually in a more untenuous position than we were at the start of this administration as far as possible nuclear breakout in the Middle East.
1: Dana, it seems like despite our best of intentions that we re-litigate the JCPOA almost every time we have a conversation about the Middle East. The circumstances, of course, have changed on the ground. Iran has not necessarily broken out towards a weapon, but it's definitely done things that are not permitted under the agreement. It started spinning up its centrifuges in a way that it was not supposed to be doing. It's advanced down the road in noticeable ways, and has openly said it was going to do that since the Trump administration pulled out of the deal. So how realistic is it for a President Biden to talk about reestablishing the JCPOA when things have changed on the ground so much? What would be the downside to a regional approach that involved Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and perhaps others? on a arms control agreement that could be monitored from Europe, China, the U.S. In other words, instead of the very limited P5 plus one approach to JCPOA, which was basically China, Russia, European powers in the United States, We involve players in the region in what is essentially their own security issues. So
0: I think that's a good idea in principle and really difficult in implementation. So what does it mean to involve the region in this approach? So, of course, the governments in the region, one of their, if not the primary criticism of the jcpoa is that it was negotiated by the p5 plus one without the governments in the region directly impacted by Iran's nuclear program being included at the table of course there were plenty of consultations and briefings on the side but we'll let that go for now i think that it's fine to think about that but now if, if you can imagine what might happen at some point in 2021 when when those negotiations could potentially take place what would it look like for Iran who's rushing very close to that line but after which it could Break out. The UAE, who has taken some significant steps, but very transparently declared its peaceful civilian nuclear energy intentions to the world. And Saudi Arabia who is not adhering to the protocols that would assure the world of its exclusively peaceful intentions, cooperating or receiving assistance from several other countries, including China, to build reactors in the desert without being transparent about their intentions. So what does that negotiation look like, given the unevenness of the state of play in the region and to what would be the end goal? And I think if we can't answer those questions, then you get yourselves involved in a diplomatic process that really never ends. Is it a nuclear-free Middle East? I think we're really beyond that point. Is it everybody having the exact same obligations pursuant to exclusively peaceful nuclear energy purposes? Sure. But that would mean that Saudi Arabia would have to take the same steps. I think it's a lovely idea, Les. I just think very difficult in implementation.
1: Jamil, how do you think a second Trump term would handle these strategic challenges and this incredibly complicated situation that just seems to be getting worse and worse every day?
3: Yeah, look, I mean, I that's an open question, right? I mean, I think that one of the challenges we have with the current administration is it is hard to pin them down on what their strategic views are on some of these issues. And so I think that you've obviously in the administration get very aggressive when it comes to China just in the last week alone. And we'll talk about that as one of the issues I'm following. But at the same time, the administration's foreign policy has been pulled in different directions. You know, even on China, where you've seen them get aggressive, you hear the president talk about the potential for a trade deal and how this thing might all get resolved if we're able to get a trade deal done. And so I do think on these large strategic questions, it is more clear how a Biden administration would handle them. because I think you'll see a return to a more traditional American foreign policy, and frankly, a more hands-off foreign policy when it comes to being out there in the world and defending our allies and opposing our enemies, as the Obama administration did. That being said, I think that this administration has tendency in that direction also, right? This administration is not particularly interested in being forward-leaning overseas when it comes to using military forces and the like. I think that the rest of the world reads that. How that might change in a second Trump administration where the president's thinking about reelect, I'm not sure. But what I think you can be assured of is that if anybody tells you what the administration's strategic view is today and what will be the next administration, they don't know what they're talking about.
1: Jody, do you want to kind of jump in here and talk about any other concerns we may have in the Middle East on nuclear power issues?
2: The one issue that we maybe haven't talked about that absolutely influences U.S. policy is the Israeli position on a nuclear Middle East, right? So you know, I think my understanding is that Netanyahu has made pretty clear to this administration, evidenced by Lindsey Graham's uh, comments to the media, that Israel isn't going to be okay with the Saudis. And I'm making sure that the Israelis are okay with the Saudis having a peaceful nuclear program, let alone a nuclear program that doesn't abide by the 1-3 gold standard or that provides any possibility for a Saudi breakout. I actually think that that's a parameter that we haven't really talked about but absolutely alters U.S. policy with respect to what we would be on board with Saudi Arabia doing. Like if Saudi went nuclear and took that step, like the threat here isn't just to Iran. Like there is a potential long term threat to Israel here. Right. Israelis and the Saudis have this kind of cold. I don't want to call it a peace, cold Relationship that they're you know they're kind of cultivating a little bit, but I wouldn't call them friends. Nor do I think that the threat is off the table completely to Israel from other places in the Middle East.
3: Although to be fair, Jody, right, Israel has a strategic deterrent in its own unacknowledged nuclear capability, and so you know you're right that they're obviously concerned with another. Arab state getting nuclear weapons or any Arab state getting nuclear weapons, but I do think that they have a responsive capability that they've maintained for a long time.
2: Yeah, no, I just like I say it in the context of like understanding where the U.S. is likely, any administration is likely to come down on this issue. It's hard to imagine the United States or Israel being happy with another country having nuclear capability, right? Any country in the Middle East other than Israel having nuclear capability obviously.
1: That's right. And I have to wonder how much at the end of the day the bigger concern, aside from what Saudi is doing and even what Iran is doing is the fact that China itself is becoming more directly involved in Middle Eastern affairs. China's much more reliant on energy sources from the Middle East than we are now. They've got huge interests there. We have been the peace broker and the power broker in the Middle East for a couple generations now. If that shifts, it's a big change for both our interests and our values. Okay, let's wrap up that topic and go to the final segment and talk about the issues that we are following that are now not necessarily on the front page. Who wants to go first?
3: I'm happy to jump in, Les. So, you know, obviously we saw a lot of action on the China trade front last week uh, from the Trump administration. Uh, We saw the announcement of a national emergency with respect to WeChat and TikTok, or at least the parent companies of those, Tencent and ByteDance. We saw a report from a presidential task force to the SEC making recommendations about potentially delisting Chinese and other companies that don't comply with our public uh, accounting board's requirements uh, to make audit papers available. And we saw the announced by the State Department of the Clean Networks Initiative, an effort to uh, ensure that American and allied networks are protected from uh, infiltration and access by uh, countries that might use them for inappropriate purposes like China. And we've already seen the action on Huawei's ETE I do think that these items taken together sort of in a single week do represent a continued uh, effort on the part of this administration and the United States government uh, to press China on a range of issues economically, uh, along with the longstanding trade dispute that we have with that nation. And the real question is, how is China going to react? We've already heard response from uh, some of these companies saying that they may sue in U.S. courts. but. The question is how the Chinese government will respond. I think that that is actually a very open question. And if China gets aggressive in their response, what does that mean for the United States and what we do? Do they continue their aggressive activities in Hong Kong, expand those? It's hard to imagine how much more might be expanded, but what might happen there? Uh, Taiwan, obviously, is an area of significant concern to the United States. Uh, the Chinese have monkeyed it with their elections before, and whether they make a more aggressive play towards Taiwan uh, is open, having watched the situation with India uh, take place and largely be out, go unnoticed by the world. And then you've got the, the operations in the South China Sea and the continued efforts by China uh, to build out their military capabilities there. So I think uh, that there is a very big concern about what the Chinese may do in response um, and what the, what the U.S. will do in response to that, right? I think the Chinese, like many, uh, perceive that the U.S. doesn't have a stomach for a real fight, um, and they may be willing to and, and may actually strategically miscalculate uh, a U.S. response when they do things uh, and look at potentially things like Taiwan. So I think a lot more to be said on that front, an area to watch for all of us, uh, an area of concern, I think, for the world uh, when it comes to this. The, the fact of the matter is we are doing the right thing and pressing China up on these issues. They have for too long uh, been a scofflaw when it comes to these matters. I um, mean, it's the right thing for the administration to press them up. I Actually, we have to watch and see what the Chinese reaction is going to be and what we'll do in response.
1: Jamil, I kind of weigh whether it's a values concern or an interest concern, but this whole TikTok thing means that I have to delete all of my old dance videos from my phone, which I think is a real loss to humanity. Okay, Dana, what are you following?
0: I am following last Tuesday's explosion in Beirut. I'm sure all of our listeners are very well aware of it. Initially, uh, the conspiracies were everything from a fighter jet flying low over Beirut, launching a missile um, to a fireworks factory. And, of course, uh, what seems to be the dominant explanation now is just terribly tragic, which is that a huge 2000 1,700 tons of ammonium nitrate, which is a good fertilizer and also a really dangerous, very powerful and potent explosive, was left in an unsecured, overheated warehouse at the Beirut port for years and years and years. And despite Beirut Port Customs Authorities raising this, asking government officials to relocate the materials because of how hazard and dangerous they were to the local neighborhoods around, the ammonium nitrate remained there. And last week, they were set off huge explosion, hundreds killed, thousands injured. And the worst part of this is that Lebanon was already a collapsing, garrantan state. Bread lines, inept, corrupt government, heavily influenced by Hezbollah, mm uh-huh blocking the reforms needed for the government to both conclude an agreement with the International Monetary Fund that could unlock international aid contingent on very serious structural reforms in Lebanon, its electricity sector, its banking sector, et cetera. And meanwhile, international flight, investor flight, banking system about to collapse, the middle class of Lebanon being basically completely wiped out. And then on top of all of this, this horrible explosion, livelihoods, homes, totally obliterated, health system collapsing. Hospitals already overwhelmed by COVID-19 response. Not enough supplies. It also looks like grain silos at the Beirut port were totally obliterated in the explosion. So now the food crisis is compounded. President Macron of France jets in there, visits the site before Lebanon's own leaders visit the site of the explosion. Uh, meanwhile, our president here in Washington, D.C. calls it an attack rather than an explosion, forcing then our uh, Department of of defense to walk that back. And here's the rub a lot of the international leaders are talking about pledging humanitarian aid to Lebanon, but not going through the government, only going through trusted organizations on the ground. What does that really look like in implementation and practice? There's no functioning ports in Lebanon that have the capacity of the Beirut port. How do you get it there without the government? A few hours ago, the entire Lebanese government resigned anyway, so now there's just nobody on the other side to talk to. Um, and all of this at the height of both the COVID crisis, and economic crisis, now a food crisis, and a health crisis. And it remains to be seen whether or not this will be that critical strategic turning point for Lebanon, where it can sweep out this corrupt inept class of political leaders who, under Hezbollah's influence, are more interested in protecting their slice of the Lebanese pie than saving the country. And it really remains to be seen. Surely. All right. So I'm taking a look at what's
2: happening in Belarus, and it isn't very frequently that Belarus makes headline news. This is a little country in what was the, you know, the Soviet Union, but has has real impacts in terms of uh, what's happening in that region, but also indicators as to the discontent that may be afoot uh, in Russia itself. So uh, Belarus held presidential elections this weekend following weeks of protests against the Lukashenko Regime. This is a regime that has been in office since 1994, and the leading opposition candidate at the end of the day was the wife of a blogger who was a candidate for the presidency himself, who was arrested and jailed a couple of days after he announced his intention to run for office. So, what's happening now on the ground is continuing protests. So, the official vote count gives her Svetlana something between like seven and ten percent uh, of the vote, while alternative civil society counts are giving her upwards of 75% in some districts in Belarus. The street protests overnight uh, were intense. At least one protester was killed. About 50 were injured. uh, And that's after special forces cracked down on dissent with rubber bullets, water cannons, gas, stun grenades, etc. The Ministry of Interior says it has arrested or detained 3,000 people in Minsk and in regions throughout Belarus. The internet has been severely disrupted for a second consecutive day in an attempt to cut off and control communications, but it's not really clear what's going to happen next. Opposition actors aren't recognizing the official election results and have called for renewed protests uh, today and for a national strike tomorrow. So, you know, this is a a real contest happening within the Soviet sphere, you know, Soviet-Russian sphere of influence that I think uh, requires us to, to really pay attention to it because it may have implications, obviously in Belarus, but maybe maybe in, in the near abroad as well.
1: Okay. So the thing I'm following is the potential for the U.S. to play the role it should play, which is the leader of the international response to coronavirus in the developing world. So far, we've had some programs. We've spent about a billion and a half dollars, which is really a drop in the bucket compared to the need. And one of the consequences of the current negotiations on the Hill and the breakdown thereof for the fourth and perhaps final round of coronavirus funding here in the U.S., there was an effort to include a robust international response in that legislative package. Now that the negotiations have largely failed and the administration has chosen to act through executive orders, it is very possible that the opportunity for the U.S. to play a global leadership role is going to be lost, at least this time around. And the the time is right for us to act now. This is a huge missed opportunity for the United States, uh, one that will surely be taken advantage of by China, Russia, and And other bad actors. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank our editor, Claude Jennings, our researcher, Suzanne and of course, our terrific editor and producer, Grant Haver. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.